This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. For the last hundred years, moviegoers, people interested in film, and people that uh, have been exposed to just about every aspect of film society or society at large have heard the name Buster Keaton. But for three or four generations of filmgoers, Buster Keaton is almost more of a concept than something that they can vividly understand. Now, uh, if you look at the incredible life and times of Buster Keaton. Not only did he create so many of the incredible film techniques, both what you see on the screen and what you don't see on the screen, but um, his work is still incredibly moving and incredibly funny in many instances, in some cases a 100 years after it entertained audiences years ago. But until now, I don't know that there's been a book that properly chronicled the nexus of Buster Keaton's work as a professional, what was going on in his own life, but when the cameras weren't running, and what was happening in society at the time. That is until now. The book is Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. And its author is Dana Stevens. Uh, She has been the film critic for Slate for some time. And she's also a co-host of the long-running weekly culture podcast, Slate Culture Gab Fest. And I'm just thrilled that uh, she's joining us on the radio this morning. Dana, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Really an incredible job on the book. Congratulations. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Now, um, a lot of folks who are a little younger may not be familiar with Buster Keaton or his work, and some may not have even heard the name. In a nutshell, who was Buster Keaton and why was he so great? Well, Buster Keaton was uh, one of the great silent comedians, um, you know, physical comedians of the the silent era. But in addition to that, as I explore in my book, he had already been a huge star on the vaudeville stage as a a child star in his family act. Uh, Before that, he was also a TV star on Into the 50s. I mean, really, I try try to make the case in this book that he was one of the great figures in entertainment in the 20th century. But primarily, people are going to come across him as, you know, the guy on the silent screen doing all the famous falls and stunts and chases that he specialized in. Why did you choose to write about him? There's a lot of great uh, entertainment giants of the 20th century, a lot of great silent film stars. People like uh, Charlie Chaplin come to mind, for instance. Why did you choose to write about Buster Keaton? Yeah, that's a good question, especially because there's certainly no shortage of books about him. In fact, there's another new biography of him that just came out um, this year, which takes a very different approach from mine. So it wasn't for a lack of of coverage of Buster Keaton in the world of film history. Uh, I mean, for me, there was never any question of if it had been, you know, somebody from the golden age of cinema, who else I would write on, just because he's a kind of patron saint of mine. I really think that he's just one of the great American artists. Um, and I didn't want to write a book on him uh only to recap his life. I mean, as you'll see, I guess you're reading the book, so so you're seeing this now, but what I try to do is to use his life as a kind of lens to look at the historical time span mm-hmm. that he that he lived in. So, you know, the thing that fascinated me about him and that really drove the uh, the experience of starting to research the book was the his lifespan, the period of of dates that he lived through. He was born in 1895. 
and he died in 1966. So that's not a hugely long lifespan. He was only 70 years old when he died, but just think of how much America oh, changed yeah. and how much the world changed between 1895 and 1966. So it more it more had to do with using him as, you know, a way to talk about all the changes in technology and entertainment and, you know, just social relationships and everything in America during that time. You know, I really didn't have a full appreciation of the fact that he was a child vaudeville star. How did he make that uh, transition from being a vaudeville star at a very young age to being a one of the biggest stars in Hollywood as a silent film star? You know, that is part of the mystery of Buster Keaton, and that was something I really, really wanted to understand in the part of the book about that transition in 1917, which is the year he moved from stage to screen, because it's somewhat hard to understand how somebody who you know, had had spent their whole life in this much earlier medium, right, in a medium that, in fact, was starting to disappear, vaudeville, and makes the transition to movies and goes from being a, you know, great performer in one area to a great performer in this entirely new medium without any seeming learning curve. And so I really wanted to look at how he was able to make that jump. And I think, I mean, it's just speculation, but I think a huge part of it is that he would have grown up around cinema. You know, he would have grown Mm. up playing on vaudeville bills with his family act, the Three Keatons, that almost always had a movie as well. You know, in his very early childhood, that would have been um, a very kind of primitive movie. You know, it probably would have been just a couple of minutes long and probably, you know, just a stationary camera in one place. And he kind of grew up along with the movies. Because something I didn't mention earlier about the, the fascination with 1895, the year of his birth, is that it was also the year that is usually called the year of the invention of the movies. I mean, it's the year that the Lumiere brothers in France first projected motion pictures for an audience. So, you know, he's born same year as movies, which means that he grows up along the form with the form of movies. And he must have just absorbed enough of that, you know, as a as a curious kid growing up in vaudeville and seeing film all around him to have known what he was doing from, from day one in front of a camera and behind it as well. He is so well known as a, as a comic on television and in film and on stage. For people that maybe haven't even seen a Buster Keaton film and are com- totally unfamiliar with him as a performer, what were his comedic strengths? What did he do that was so funny? I mean, well, I mean, I guess the main thing I would say is just that he was kind of, you know, as a child, he was he was a kind of slapstick prodigy, you know, and he took that ability, the ability to fall, which in his childhood was essentially the ability to be thrown because the act, the Three Keatons, is all about his dad throwing him around stage because he grew up, you know, doing physical comedy from the moment he could walk practically. He knew how to fall and he knew how to, you know, do incredible stunts in a way that made him seem like he was in some kind of different universe than all the performers around him. And you see that when you watch his movies, that he seemed, the laws of physics seem to apply to his body differently than the bodies surrounding him on screen. So I can't really describe it unless you have seen the films themselves, but, you know, he just could survive things that didn't seem like a human body should be able to survive. And on top of that, he was not just performing in front of the camera, but he was the one, you know, behind the camera devising all of these crazy stunts in the first place. He also, I think, in addition to, you know, being great at, at, at falling and all kinds of acrobatics and so forth, he um, he loved props. You know, he loved technology and he loved to to build strange sets, you know, whether it was trains chasing each other or houses spinning on an axis or, you know, he just had a a kind of crazy imagination for, you know, building um, imaginative worlds. 
And uh, and so there are a lot of films he made, the general, you know, the great train chase movies, the one that comes to mind, that really only could have sprung from that particular brain, you know, with its very mechanical way of thinking about the world. Well, that is interesting. And by the way, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dana Stevens. She's written a new book called Cameraman, which chronicles not only the career and the life and times of Buster Keaton, but what was happening in America and the world uh, from the late 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. And clearly, when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to what was happening in and in in uh, journalism, when it comes to minority rights, the world looked a lot different in the 1960s than it did in the 1890s. But I don't think there's an area where it's easier to observe that change than the area of entertainment. I mean, if you look at films that were being made at the dawn of Buster Keaton's cinematic career and then the last films that he made, uh, films like It's a Mad Mad World, for instance, they look completely different. How much of the film technique that we're so accustomed to seeing today was pioneered by Buster Keaton, either in terms of technology or stylistically or in terms of the actual content that was that people were seeing on cinema screens. I mean, he was a pioneer, certainly. I think it's hard to point to any one technique or any one, you know, stylistic touch that was invented by him. It was more, I think, and this is what what fascinated me about it, that he was, in a very sophisticated way, able to take things that other people were doing and push Mm. them further. I mean, an example of that from his silent era would be um, would be doubling images on the screen, you know, with sort of superimposing, having more than one um, figure, reproducing yourself on screen, which was done within the camera by masking the lens, right, and and rewinding the film and then filming again so that you could get two busters. Well, he has a film called The Playhouse, I think it's from 1921, where he recreates himself on on screen dozens of times. He plays every character in a vaudeville show. So, you know, he's everybody on stage, he's everyone in the audience, he's the whole crew. So he certainly was not the first person to have used that kind of doubling technique, but, you know, he took it much further than anyone had and in ways that still look kind of technically breathtaking. But what fascinated me again about 1917, that year he enters the movies, is that all of those techniques were, you know, just starting to be to be used and to be um, reproduced from movie to movie. So, you know, he kind of got in, he got in just at the right moment where he could grab ideas that others, like D.W. Griffith, for example, had had started and really run with them and push them even further. If you had to pick... What would you say your favorite Buster Keaton films are, and do you think they would still hold up with most audiences today? Well, I mean, in answer to the second question, I can tell you for a fact that they still hold up because for the past few months since this book came out, I've been going around screening them in places, um, sometimes to audiences who have not seen Keaton before, like kids, for example, and sometimes to people who have who have been watching him for, for years, and they kill. I mean, they never, never fail mm. to just, um, you know, just to get the audience on the floor. Uh, as for my favorite, it's it's really hard when you know somebody's work really well. It almost switches from day to day. But I think traditionally I say that my favorite is his last independent film, which is Steamboat Bill Jr. And I showed that at the, at the book launch event just because I have a real sentimental attachment to that movie. And as you see in the book, there's a whole chapter about Steamboat Bill Jr. 
if you know a little bit about his life, his personal life and professional life, and what was going on in both at that moment, Steamboat Bill is this really pivotal movie in, in, in all areas of his life. So it's fascinating to watch for that reason. And it's just a hilarious film. And it has probably his most famous stunt that even people who don't know Keaton well probably have seen repeated in a GIF, for example, on social media. It's always going around, which is the one where the frame of the house, you know, right. the entire house front falls on him, and he just happens to be framed in one little window opening. So that was one of his most famous and one of his most dangerous stunts. Oh, no, I, I can imagine. And he did all of his own stunts at the time, right? There was no Buster Keaton sound, uh, stuntman. No, he was a real stickler about that. I think there's one stunt stunt double for him in all of his silent film era, and that was because he needed a pole vaulter for for a scene that was about you know athletics, and he just decided that rather than learn to pole vault, which would have taken him months, he hired the gold medalist in, in pole vaulting from the previous year. But no, he that was a, a huge point of pride with him, that he wanted to not only be the one doing all the stunts for himself, but he sometimes doubled for his co-stars. You know, he would put on a co-star's costume and fall off a train or something because he knew that that person couldn't do it without a getting injured and b you know not being able to do it as, as funny as he could so yeah he, he didn't like to use some people and he also liked to frame himself you know to pull the camera far back enough that you could see that it was him in the frame and that there were no tricks in the camera and you know that all of it was really happening in real time you referenced his last independently produced film he made some films in the studio system, mostly for MGM. I'm wondering if you can explain kind of the difference, what that meant in terms of the pro final product that was produced, what viewers actually saw. Also, um, what that meant for him in his personal life and sort of what was happening in Hollywood at the time with the emergence of the Hollywood studio system. I know that kind of three-part question is probably uh, better left to a, an eight-week lecture than a, than a one-minute <laughs> response, but do the best you can. Yeah, I was going to say, if you want to really hear about it, you've got to read the book. But um, but that was a huge moment for him. The the moment after he makes Steamboat Bill Jr., the one I was just talking about, The House Falls on Him, was filmed in mid-1927. And what else happened in film history in 1927 that was a big deal? Well, The Jazz Singer came out, the first – it's usually called the first sound film, although, you know, as with most technological developments, sound had been kind of slowly creeping into film, and, you know, there had already been synchronized music and so forth. But The Jazz Singer is the first movie to have synchronized dialogue and, you know, it took the film industry and the nation by storm. And suddenly, in much faster than anyone in the film industry had thought, suddenly everybody wanted sound. All the theaters were trying to rewire themselves so that they could show sound movies. All the studios were trying to shut down their silent film production and start up sound production as fast as possible. And it was really a, a very violent thing for the whole film industry, you know, not just for Keaton's career, but many, many careers were upended at that time. Um, but part of the result for Keaton of, um, of this changeover from silent to sound, which, of course, also went with big economic changes in the film industry, is that independent studios like the one he had been running, you know, running with the, with the support, the financial support of a producer for the last 10 years – we're starting to shut down. It was not a viable thing to do anymore to have you know, these little mom and pop size studios. And the 
studio system as we think of it, you know, the classic Hollywood studio system with the big six studios running everything was already starting to take over very quickly. So essentially this moment, you know, where he signs a contract with MGM, something he later called the worst mistake of my life, um, it happened because there wasn't really any, anywhere else to go. It had to be one of the big six studios, and that was kind of, you know, the, the, well, why the was most that? Why was one. Why did he view that? I know he developed a drinking problem and was having some personal issues uh, shortly thereafter, but why was that such a big mistake for him? Did he view it that way anyway? Well, I think it was just simply because that style of filmmaking, you know, the, the big corporate filmmaking style that MGM in particular was starting to innovate at that point, which is, you know, essentially that instead of running your own little unit where you sit down, as he had been doing for 10 years with your little writing crew and, you know, come up with your story and then go out with your cameraman and your set designer and create exactly the vision you want, of course, you are instead in this huge company where there's a, you know, a design department and there's a... Mm you know, um, makeup department and the ideas are being fed to you by a team of screenwriters. And so that just didn't suit his style of, of art making at all. I mean, his whole life, whether it was first with his family and the Three Keatons or later producing and directing and editing and, and starring in his own films, he had just always kind of run the show himself and, you know, realized his own individual vision. And so he really didn't, he was kind of like an animal in a cage at MGM. You know, he really did not fit into that kind of corporate framework, and they didn't understand him at all. You know, the producers and screenwriters who were trying to produce material for him didn't understand why he was funny or how he worked. And so it very quick, quickly turned into a disastrous situation, not to mention, as you as you said, that he, you know, his marriage was falling apart. He was drinking too much. His father had been an alcoholic before him, and, you know, at this moment in his mid-30s, he became one too. And, you know, it was it was just a mess. So he had some very dark years there in the 1930s. There are some uh, silent film stars that were able to make that transition to talking pictures pretty effectively. Uh, there are others whose names are almost completely forgotten, uh, people like Mae Murray and uh, Norma Talmadge. And I'm wondering, how did Buster Keaton handle that transition from silent pictures to talking pictures? How did that affect his career? Well, you know, I mean, if you look at his his how how his career went at that point, it's not really the case that his voice ruined his career, you know, that he didn't know how to say lines or he wasn't, you know, comfortable in front of a sound camera. He was perfectly interested in making sound films, but it, it really did have more to do with, well, for one thing, the particular studio he landed at, you know, and the fact that they didn't really seem to get what, what he was up to at all. And... And just the, the, the economics of the whole thing. I mean, I think that his, his misery at MGM didn't really have to do with, well, now I have to be silent. It, had, it was, now I have to do what other people are telling me to do instead of what I wanted to do. You know? And in fact, I think there's a lot of mismaking about people's voice ruining their careers, you know, the way it happens in, um, in Singing, Singing in the Rain, rain sure. which is one of our, you know, made in 1954 or something, but one of our big stories about you know, that transition in, from the, the 20s to the 30s. In reality, it seems like what happened is public taste changed, you know, and that's why um, the kind of great leading ladies of silent cinema, almost none of them, Greta Garbo is one exception, but almost none of them made that jump, you know, because the style of what a woman should be was, was changing very fast, too, you know, the sort of um, uh, the expectation of a female star. So suddenly there were these kind of vampy pre-code ladies who had absolutely nothing to do with the, you know, in, much more innocent type that had been the silent screen type. 
um, yeah, it's, it was it was just a, a moment when the public suddenly wanted something different, and a lot of people's careers were the casualty of that. You mentioned the changing role of women in film. There was also a, a great deal of a changing role for women in society from uh, the time Keaton's career started to the time that he passed away. How did uh, Buster Keaton deal with women in film and then subsequently on television? Did, was he someone that would be characterized as sort of a, a progressive filmmaker when it came to women's roles, or did he sort of just change as the studio system changed? I mean, I think it was a little bit more of the latter. I talk a lot about women in the book and about you know how the the, the image of the the leading ladies in his films changed so much over the course you know from the the late teens when he started making movies, even just until the late twenties, you know, until that that period when he he lost his independence as a filmmaker. And I don't think it was because he was trying to put forward any kind of feminist vision in his mm. movies whatsoever. I don't think he really had that on his mind at all. He was a very apolitical guy in his life. Um, but but it was just that society was changing so rapidly around him, you know, that naturally the the, the way that women were, were shown in films was going to be different, too. So, for example, you know, the, the girls that he's trying to win, the, the, the win their hearts in his early 1920s films are – like girls in gingham dresses, you know, sweet little farm girls. Right, desperate um, for him to fight for the Confederacy. Right, that, yeah. That's very true in the general, for sure. Although I also think that the reading of that movie as a pro-Confederate or lost cause movie is, is kind of inaccurate. Because once again, it was his apoliticism. You know, it's true that he plays a Confederate hero in that movie, but it's not at all a pro-Confederate movie. It was really his, it was his attempt to, as he saw it, side with the underdog since the South had lost the war. But at any rate, to get back to your question about women, and then by the end of the 20s, this, the women that he's trying to win over in his movies are flappers, essentially. You know, they're they're going out drinking and, you know, they're, I don't know, flirting with different men. And it's just it's a completely different way of, of seeing femininity, which, again, I think was not necessarily a choice on his part. I love the episode of The Twilight Zone that he's in, where it becomes briefly a uh, a silent film. And it's just very cleverly done. It's incredibly funny. Uh, but Towards the end of Buster Keaton's career, I referenced the, the bit that he played in It's a Mad, Mad World. How did he fare uh, as uh, society's tastes were changing, as films weren't just going from silent to talking, but from black and white to color? And uh, we saw all sorts of films that uh, featured Buster Keaton, like Beach Bank Blanket Bingo, which were light years from films like Sherlock Jr. and other uh, work that he was doing in the 20s. How did he handle that transition and how did audiences remember him in the late 50s, early 60s as compared to the late 20s, early 30s? I mean, the late 50s and 60s in particular was a really prosperous and successful time for him. Obviously, he didn't have the independence he had before. You know, in those movies that you mentioned, It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World or, or Beach Blanket Bingo or, I mean, what else was he in? He would he appeared in, you know, Around the World in 80 Days and The Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum and all those kind of big overstuffed star vehicles that were in, in vogue at the time in the early 60s. Um, but he he had actually already been through a career resurgence at that point because it was TV. It was it was mm. the you know the the real launch of TV in the late 40s and early 50s that recharged his career. You know he'd had that that really down and out period in the mid 30s where he was fired from MGM for drinking and absenteeism. He couldn't get work, 
And that only lasted a few years, really. Then he went back to MGM, not, no longer as a performer, but as a gag writer, behind the scenes writing for the Marx Brothers and others, and uh, and was kind of keeping his head down. You know, he was making a living in entertainment, but, you know, I think he, he no longer knew whether he wanted to or could get in front of a camera. All that started to change with TV, because suddenly there was a new medium that he was excited about, which in its early days drew a lot of people from, from vaudeville. And suddenly those skills, like live entertainment skills, right, because early TV was often live, um, were were in demand again. So he was everywhere in the 1950s. And, in fact, I've spoken to a few people at screenings or who have read the book since it came out who said, oh, yeah, you know, people slightly older than me who grew up knowing him as a TV performer. Right. He was the guy in the aspirin commercials, you know, and he was the guy on the Twilight Zone, the episode that you remember. Um, and, you know, he was on Candid Camera and – he was never on I Love Lucy, but he was actually one of the forces behind uh, Lucille Ball creating the pilot for I Love Lucy, which I talk about a bit in the book because he was good friends with Lucille Ball. So his 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 presence is everywhere in that period of, of early television. And by the time he died in 1966, I feel like he was a sort of a venerated figure, both as a kind of a beloved figure on TV and because his movies were starting to come back. Um, so something that he had not foreseen at all, you know, since he didn't make much of an effort to preserve his movies or to, to keep them in people's minds at all, is that they they did have a resurgence. And, you know, I think he died in 66, realizing that he would be remembered. Well, speaking of a resurgence, you mentioned your, yours is one of two new books out about Buster Keaton. I understand there's also a film uh, that's uh, that's in the works that's coming out soon about Buster Keaton. What do you think is behind the resurgence and in interest in Buster Keaton in the year 2022, 60 years after he's passed away? You know, I don't I, – as far as my book and the other book coming out at the same time, that had nothing to do with any kind of anniversary or with any um, attempt to time it to any resurgence. It was just simply that the pandemic delayed both of our books, and they ended up coming out mm. at the same time. Um, and the movie that's being made about him is actually from a it's, – it was it's an option from a book that came out long ago. It's a book that's, I don't know, 30 years old or something like that. So I'm not quite sure whether it was the interest in our books, you know, these two new biographies that launched – you know, that got that the, the biopic to be announced. To me, I mean, and I, I say this in the book, I think it's at the very, in the last sentence probably, he's he's this, this figure who's always coming, you know, always of the future in a way. There's something that's so timeless about him that each generation that discovers him gets just as excited, you know, as if they were discovering him for the first time back in the 20s. And um, for me, part of the Part of the point of writing the book was to be part of that legacy, you know, and to make sure that he is someone that keeps on making kids laugh, because I've never seen a kid not immediately understand the humor of Keaton. It's so physical and so simple. Um, and to make sure that he doesn't become someone who's a, a dusty archival figure mm. that is vaguely confused with Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd, also great comedians, but completely different, completely distinct from what he was doing. As you say, still and always ahead of his time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Dana Stevens, uh, the book is Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. Thanks so much for uh, joining me on the radio. I hope we can do this again soon. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.